Welcome to the Monday Potluck. Today is a very important day for many reasons. And I have heard these two women, now actually three women with Mary Ritchie included, talk about this issue. And I am so glad to have them on the call today. We're going to get real personal uh, today about this issue. And that is reproductive freedom. Mary, let me start with you, and then I'll have you introduce our special guests. But this is this is a pack you helped create. Tell us why personally this issue is so important to you. Good afternoon to everyone. It's it's great to see so many familiar faces on the Zoom. So happy to have you all here to hear from the real experts, the two physicians who are actually on the front lines of this issue. Uh, in answer to your question, Julie, I remember being in college when friends had abortions and the way that they had them was to, based on their means, their economic ability to travel to, one traveled, I believe, to New York and the other to California. Uh, regardless, they had the means to take care of their pregnancies that were unplanned. In both cases, they had boyfriends, and in both cases, they made the decisions because of a lot of other circumstances in their lives. And when Roe v. Wade was passed by the U.S. Supreme Court, it began a new era of work on not only reproductive choice, it set in motion at that same time in the early 70s, the women's causes that were coming to light. And the work that was being done by several of us uh, in that arena who considered ourselves feminists. And we learned what it was like during the, the campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment in Iowa and how this issue around reproductive choice was positioned as something that was to um, break up the family and some other claims that were being purported by the opponent. So fast forward to 50 years of work on this issue with Planned Parenthood. And last July at this special session, I heard Dr. Turner, and we'll, we'll be hearing from her and Dr. Emily Bavers, certainly more than from me, when they were very articulately speaking what it was like to be on the front lines as physicians, working with patients and having government in the exam room with them, legislating what they could or could not do as medical professionals trained in the area of healthcare for women. And so I uh, quickly became involved. This PAC allows the group to be educating, informing, and ultimately endorsing and working toward the election of uh, political uh, representatives and senators at the state level and other levels, certainly we're starting at the state level with the general primary and general elections coming up this year and uh, supporting those who will recognize not only the value of having the physicians giving their testimony about what it's like to work in the healthcare arena with their hands tied legislatively, but also to um, work toward uh, uh, representatives that see their work as public service and not even though they might be in the majority of the party, they're in the minority of what Iowans are saying based on the research they want around reproductive health care and choice. Okay, well, thank you, Mary, very much 
for all that you do. Let's start with you, Dr. Francesca Turner. Dr. Turner, why don't you tell me, if you would, please, one story from your practice in the last month that you wish everybody could know, obviously, guarding patient confidentiality. But can you think of one story, one woman, one client, one patient that is particularly impacted by what's going on in this issue? I have a couple recently. So since last July, when things have become in flux, every time I see a patient, I'm like, what would happen to this woman if these laws were enacted? Um, And very recently I had two, uh, one had an ectopic pregnancy, um, didn't know she was pregnant, came in, uh, wasn't in pain, wasn't bleeding, was very stable, but had an embryo with a heartbeat in her fallopian tube. And, oh, and so uh, she was, again, stable. And I took her to the OR. I had to remove that fallopian tube um, with the embryo. And I was wondering is because, and that's unusual. Usually uh, embryo doesn't really grow in the tube, but because there was a heartbeat, would I have to wait for her tube to rupture open? And so typically they don't get, ectopics don't get this big and they're not this stable, but because it was so big, when that fallopian tube ruptured open, she was going to lose a lot of blood because it had a huge blood supply. And so just that, that was a pregnancy that would never be viable. A pregnancy that was, you can't move an ectopic like uh, some people like to purport. Um, there, that will kill her. And it was big and she would bleed to death. Um, and then even more recently, I had a um, patient who had a pregnancy at where the fallopian tube, a little portion of the fallopian tube transverses when it goes into the uterus. And she had a pregnancy in that location. It's called an interstitial pregnancy. It is very dangerous because they have a huge amount of blood um, to their uterus. And you can't just remove that part of the uterus or that's what you end up having to do sometimes. Um, And it was very concerning. It was very early. We caught it before there was a heartbeat. Um, But I was so anxious and nervous that what would happen to this pregnancy if we had laws, because if we waited till her uterus ruptured open, it would be catastrophic. And when I say catastrophic, I mean massive transfusion protocols. I mean, hysterectomy, like impairing her future fertility. Um, And so those are just two very recent things I mean, I haven't seen an interstitial pregnancy in 22 years, uh, so it's not super common. And of course, it was this month. And I was like, how how are we going to handle these things going forward? Um, and all of these pregnancies, whether they're desired or not, I also like to stress that like abortion care is health care. And whatever reason a woman has to continue or not continue pregnancy is valid. And so even though the examples that I'm giving are uh, threatening the life of the mother, but I don't want to diminish the value um, and the reason and the importance of having abortion as healthcare for all pregnant people in Iowa. 
Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll go back and forth. But Dr. Emily Bavers, you are practicing in Waverly, as I understand it. Can you think of an example, something that comes to mind of a woman that you have worked with in the last month that would be impacted by some of the draconian legislation being proposed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that's so important to recognize about women's health care and the intersection of women's health care with rural health care is how these maternal health deserts really play out when people are having emergencies. Um, the things that Dr. Turner described um, when you have them occur in a large metro hospital with nearby other metro hospitals with a lot of resources, with a, a, with a great concentration of specialists, subspecialists, and blood, these things are generally manageable. But when these things occur in rural areas, um, you may be 30 minutes, you may be 60 minutes from even a hospital that has additional blood, much less subspecialty care, um, including other surgical specialists or radiologic specialists, such as interventional radiology that can help with you know, massive hemorrhages. Um, and so anything that happens in a rural area in a maternal health desert is more severe simply because of the lack of access and resources. I um, had a patient just in the last week or so who has um, a history of pregnancy loss and who was diagnosed with a multiple gestation pregnancy. Um, one of the gestations, one of the twins basically had a heartbeat and one of them did not. And she's having kind of ongoing bleeding. This is a desired pregnancy. Um, and, uh, this patient, you know, is, is anxious for this pregnancy to continue developing. Um, but I'm very anxious because every day that she's bleeding, um, makes me concerned that she might be moving toward um, a, a miscarriage or what we would call in medicine, a spontaneous abortion. And a spontaneous abortion really speaks to the loss of the um, fetal cardiac activity. And so we can recognize that at that point, the pregnancy is no longer developing normally. However, just because the fetal cardiac activity has been lost doesn't necessarily mean that the pregnancy passes safely and that you know the, the pregnancy is over in that sense. And so oftentimes these patients will come in with what we would then in medicine call a missed abortion where the pregnancy is retained, but there's just bleeding and women can become septic. Um, and very quickly um, the situation can evolve into something that is life-threatening or even fatal because of the risks of sepsis and then uh, disseminated intravascular co coagulopathy or DIC, which is where women stop making, you know, appropriate levels of blood clotting factors. Um, and so anytime that I have a patient who, in my mind, may be brewing a dangerous clinical situation, I, I do, I sit and think, you know, who can I loop in early? How can I prepare my hospital for if this emergency occurs? Um, in a maternal health desert, such as, you know, much of Iowa, um, there may be only one obstetrician gynecologist practicing. 
Um, I am the only full-time obstetrician gynecologist at my hospital. So the other problem is that if this patient comes in and I am, I happen to be off or out of town, you know, if I'm off, people are welcome to call me at home, even if I'm not on call. And, but if I'm out of town, then she may come to this hospital and still have no one who can even start to treat her. It's a real problem. And laws like this, where if she's having massive bleeding or developing sepsis from the loss of one of these twins, but the other one has a heartbeat, it would dramatically, dramatically risk our ability to provide her care. Is it harder to recruit physicians such as yourselves to come to Iowa these days? So um, I was going to just say one thing to Amy's or to Emily's point. Uh, so maternal health care deserts in Iowa are uh, it's large swaths, swaths of our state. And Iowa currently has the fewest number of OBGYNs per capita, lower than any other state. So right now we have the fewest number of OBs in our state. Um, and when we have abortion restrictions, we know the um, OBGYN residencies have to be able to provide comprehensive health care. And if they cannot provide um, abortion services for those new young doctors, um, they will not be accredited. So having abortion restrictions in states um, threatens the accreditation of our only OBGYN residency. So our entire state only has one residency for OBGYN, and that is in Iowa City. And so if we lose that, that is a, a big way that we keep physicians in our state. Um, and uh, it is definitely, so that's to Emily's point, but it's definitely difficult to recruit physicians to a state um, where they could not practice full medicine, risk saving a, like saving a woman's life or performing this abortion, you're either going to commit malpractice or you're going to break the law. And so um, it's a very difficult bind. And when you look at how it has played out in other states, physicians are very, we're risk averse people at baseline. And so when you have these things, well, is this patient sick enough? What should I do? They talk to the attorneys. The attorneys are always like, no, 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 they're not sick enough. Send them home. There's stories out of Ohio where women are septic and bleeding and they are told to wait in the parking lot of the hospital. And when you get sicker, come back. Um, we have seen it played out in Texas where women are septic um, and told you're not septic enough. Just FYI, sepsis, the definition means that there is bacteria in your bloodstream and causing multi-organ failure. How many organs have to fail? At what level do they have to fail before we can give women standard of care medicine? Wow. What are some of the common misperceptions about what you deal with on a daily basis? Well, I think okay. one thing that I would say is that I think it, it can be difficult for people that are maybe in our um, elected positions in the state or positions of power and privilege in the state to really understand what a normal, you know, middle class or lower middle class or um, or other family looks like 
out here in rural Iowa or in places like, you know, Des Moines, where Dr. Turner works. And the um, hardships that these individuals face and the hurdles that they already face to not just getting medical care, but um, paying the bills, taking care of the children that they might have, paying for school lunch, you know, during the day. All of these things really contribute to the health of a family and and for me, the health of my patients. When I, you know, take care of a woman in the clinic, um, she doesn't look like what our state senators necessarily look like. She is not somebody who um, has a lot of resources and a lot of help, you know, at her fingertips. She may be somebody who um, is really struggling and is bearing a lot of stress and a lot of burden on her shoulders to take care of the things that are already on her plate. Um, and so that I think is a big misconception about women's health care is that, you know, the women that we care for look like the people that um, you maybe see on TV or the people that you see in positions of privilege. When in reality, um, you know, in my clinic, I often have patients that are telling me very vulnerable things about, you know, what the state of their life and the state of their family, the state of their finances. And you wouldn't think necessarily that a gynecologist has all these conversations, but it, we really are taking care of women uh, at their most vulnerable. And so we know the struggles that they're going through. What are they thinking when they come to you? There's so much, there's so much information, disinformation out there about the issue. What are some of the most uh, frequently asked questions? This is to both of you uh, that you deal with with patients. I think patients just really don't know like what is legal or illegal or what is happening. Um, and I think patients just don't actually care they are just coming to me because they want me to take care of them and give them like good information. Um, and so I think if, if you are, I mean, I deal with a, a lot of a population where we have a lot of immigrants or refugees um, or lower socioeconomic class. Um, and they don't really know the state of affairs. Um, they might kind of hear about it and wonder, um, but they're really just, and Nobody really thinks, nobody thinks that they could have a life-threatening emergency and that I wouldn't be able to care for them. Like when I tell people, well, if this happens, you might have to go to another state or do other things. People are literally shocked um, at when I tell them some things. And we don't even have um, the six-week abortion ban in place at this time. Um, and so I've had patients before come in um, with little or no prenatal, prenatal care in the third trimester with um, problems that are with the fetus that are non-survivable and that are tragic. Um, and they might have to leave the state uh, to get care. And sometimes uh, the pregnancy is so um, abnormal, the women would not be able to have a vaginal delivery um, or it could be life-threatening for other reasons. So uh, not only is the fetus not viable, but it, it's threatening her life. 
but because she's passed the current restrictions, she has to go out of state uh, to end that pregnancy. What options does a poor woman have? It, well, in my situation, a lot of my patients, I have patients that literally walk to our hospital with their five children in the snowstorm to get care um, because they don't have childcare, because they don't have transportation and they can't afford the bus. So if that in those situations, those women truly do not have a lot of options because they can't travel, they don't have childcare, they won't have food to eat while they're there. A lot of states still have restrictions where there's a waiting period. So they'd have to spend the night somewhere. Um, but these burdens are on, on lower socioeconomic class people and people that are marginalized. I mean, this is really who it's most devastating for is wealthy people will always have an option for an abortion, but it's like lower socioeconomic class and the marginalized patients that need this care the most that have unsurmountable burdens. I'm going to open it up to questions and comments from the people on the call. Just know that you are muted. Everybody is muted. So we avoid the background noise and you'll need to unmute in order to ask your question. Mary, you had a very good point and a very good question. If you would please go right ahead. Mary Ritchie. When you were asking about some of the misinformation that's being um, put forth, one of the um, uh, steps in small steps of progress that these two physicians have been able to um, advocate for and see results of is around the term, and I'm using air quotes, fetal heartbeat. And I believe they both explain um, the meaning and how it actually is used in their practice as OB-GYN docs. And so I'm interested to hear that for all. The fetal heartbeat bill, as our legislature has named it, um, is really a um, language that is just intended to stir the hearts of people. Um, and medically speaking, at the stage that they're talking about the pregnancy, it's an embryo, and the embryo has what we would call in medicine a cardiac activity, meaning that the muscle that will eventually become the heart has started to have chemical activity that makes it flicker. Um, but it's not a heartbeat and it's not a fetus. So these are, you know, intentional pieces of misinformation um, that the public unfortunately has to try to sift through. And most of them, you know, again, don't have the, as Francesca mentioned with her patients, you know, they just want good care. They don't have the time to research, you know, what this language actually means and if it's accurate, um, they just want good care. Susan Beckman. You have, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's one of our biggest uh, problems is uh, the law is super inaccurate. And when words matter and facts are important, I say this a lot because we have definitions of things. And if things are out there that are different, they don't mean things. Uh, we can't understand a six-week fetal heartbeat. Like none of those things exist. Um, and so it's really hard to have a law and practice medicine around uh, inaccurate words. That's all. So we do have questions on the call, but I, I have to ask you both to answer this. How do you manage your rage? <laughs> Seriously, you're dealing with life and death issues and 
some legislature does legislator does something without any idea what they're talking about. How do you how do you go home? I mean, do you pound your head on the wall? Do you what do you do? How do you handle it? Dr. Turner podcasts and I just am as active as I can be. And I try to I literally talk about abortion every single day to almost everybody I meet. It's ridiculous how much I talk about abortion. Um, and I have like my teenagers talk about abortion and it's so I, uh, I don't know. I just kind of like try to just let it go, um, and try not to internalize it and just keep working. But sometimes I want to pull my hair out. So I don't, I don't really have a great answer. Dr. Baver. Yeah. Um, I would say similar, you know, persistence. There are a lot of people out there who are persisting, um, even though there's a lot of injustice around this and, and many other issues. Um, and I also really like wine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's see. A case of conundrum is on its way. All right. Susan Beckman, go ahead and ask your question or make your comment. First of all, I want to say thank you to both of you doctors for serving the populations that you serve. I have lived in rural Iowa and um, I had a baby when I was 17, 50, she'll be 50 years old this year. So the Roe v. Wade thing has been part of my life in all of my childbearing years. And a couple of things, one myth that I hear repeatedly from people is that women are using abortion for birth control. And they are adamant about that. And most of the people I know who are very politically active right to lifers, that's their absolute passion is that pregnancy should not be terminated for birth control. So that's one myth, I think. I If we have a problem where teenagers are using abortion or any woman has to use abortion as birth control, then we have a bigger problem. To me, there's a bigger problem with a root that we need to find and solve. I'd like to know how you feel about that. And then secondly, the definition of what an abortion is. I have a niece who was also pregnant with twins that sounds a lot similar to what um, you described with your patient. And she was losing one twin's heartbeat had stopped and the other one was they were in danger of losing that baby. She was rushed to Iowa City and she did end up losing both of the twins. So the term spontaneous abortion, what the body does when it's necessary. And I, I think just the definition of what an abortion is, I, I think it's very unclear for the common person. They all that in, for the most part, they think it's, it's birth control. They're just getting rid of something. So if you could speak to that, please. And thank you again. I'll speak to the first one, if that's okay, Dr. Babers. Yeah. Um, like uh, women don't use abortions is birth control. It's expensive. It's mentally and physically, emotionally exhausting. It's really hard. Um, and so what I would say, if someone's like, people are using uh, abortion as birth control, we have a super easy, great solution. And we know it works. We need to give affordable and accessible contraception to everyone. It works in all the Scandinavian countries. We have tons of data that their abortion rates are extremely low because they have access to re comprehensive health care, which includes reproductive health care. So if somebody really doesn't like abortion, 
They need to be fighting for women and every person in Iowa to have access to comprehensive women's health care. The problem is they don't actually, that's not actually what they feel. The entire point is they want to control women and force birth um, for various reasons. And that is the end point. Those people who are those rabid pro-lifers, I have not seen one of them support Planned Parenthood. I have not seen one of them support access to healthcare in our state. I've not seen anybody support over-the-counter contraception. It is something that we work on all the time and talk about. And um, so so that point is not valid um, if they try to make it. It's a fallacy and it's not true. Um, so, and I'm very sorry about your niece and her loss. Yeah. Dr. Babers, I, you know, one thing you learn in communication workshops is if you want to be effective, don't make the other person wrong in a debate. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, there are people who have lifelong, uh, very deeply held religious uh, beliefs about abortion. How do you, how do you engage them in conversations so you don't make them wrong? You don't make them defensive but you, but you share your experience of what the reality is. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, in addition to my work here, I should say as a provider in rural Iowa, I also do on some days off provide care at a, in, a, in an abortion clinic. And so I do care for patients who are, you know, sometimes seeking abortion care. And it does hurt my heart to hear, you know, about some of the um, misconceptions around these patients, because I really do see patients who are making some of the most, you know, just very personal decisions that they will ever make. Um, when I hear people say that women are using abortion as birth control, even though I disagree with that, I actually don't argue with them on the basis of, of their opinion. Um, I don't, I, I say, okay, but that woman has told us and has made a decision that she cannot, for whatever reason, carry this pregnancy. For whatever reason, this pregnancy cannot continue for her. And that's still her choice, you know? And I think that kind of coming back to that, like, I won't argue with you, you know, you feel like that's life. You feel like life begins at this point in time. You feel like um, as a society, we should have, you know, speak for, people that can't speak for themselves, that doesn't carry on to all different subsets, of course, but you know all the different arguments that people can come up with. I always try to bring it back to my patients to say, okay, it's okay to feel that way. And it's okay to feel like, you know, it, it kind of makes you uncomfortable when people are having a quote unquote elective abortion. It's okay that that makes you uncomfortable but it's still not right to force someone to carry a pregnancy. It's still not right to force someone to give birth. Um, parenting is, I think anyone on the Zoom who's a parent would agree, it is the hardest thing that almost any of us ever do. You, If you don't go into becoming a parent with 110% um, ready to throw it on the table, then you're ill-prepared. Um, and so for anyone who's not there, allow them the grace to make a decision about their body and their future, even if it makes you uncomfortable. 
you know, that is kind of how I engage with people around this topic is by validating that it's okay to have, be uncomfortable around abortion care. And I agree with Dr. Turner that the solution with um, to, to help to cope with your discomfort is to do everything in your power to prevent women being in a situation where they become pregnant and they don't mean to. But that still doesn't mean that you take away the option to terminate a pregnancy that for any reason a woman feels she cannot carry. Okay, thank you. Mary Weaver, you're next. And then Barb Biddle, you'll both need to, there you go. Thank you. I am applauding and thankful for you two physicians for the work you're doing. How do you handle the ethics that um, if a child comes to you, we'll say 10 or 12 who's been raped and you know that it's not the, the best thing for that child to have to carry that pregnancy, how do you handle that? And what kind of conversation can you help us with so that we could in turn talk with our elected officials? Adam, okay, there you go. So I usually, um, because when a child is in that situation, um, this is very difficult and it impacts the entire family and a lot of people even around the family, their larger community. Um, and it's super complicated. And I, when I talk to officials, I like to always say, this decision should be up to that family. This family was put in a position that no one should ever be put in. I can't make that decision for them. All I can do is give them the best medical advice and options available to them. This family needs to make the decision. Governor Reynolds does not need to make that decision for that family. The government does not need to make that decision for that family. This is the hardest thing this family is ever going to go through. And it is the most personal thing this family is going to go through. And that is so I went for Health Liberty. Our mission is to get the government out of the exam room and let the doctors practice standard of care medicine. And so that's what I, that's how I tell elected officials. That's what I do when I talk about it is that it, it, it's impossible to imagine and it's difficult to live through. So you don't get to make that choice. Dr. Turner, have you had the experience of working with somebody very young who's been raped? Yes. And okay, we'll let, we'll let. I mean, it's just, it's just unfortunate and things happen and things happen that I find things happen frequently that I think I can't be shocked. Something happens. I'm like, nothing shocks me. And I'm still shocked, not infrequently. Um, of things that happen in the world. And I think I know all the things, um, but there are situations that are unimaginable. And the reason I ask that is because so often when we talk about this, um, it's an issue and it's statistics and it's facts and it's numbers, but you two are both working on the front lines with real people who are not just a number. So I think the more we can make this personal, we can bring this to life and 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 make people understand what is at stake. It is life and death for some people. Um, how about how about you, 
doctor? Yeah, I've worked with very young patients who have had um, pregnancies occur. And if it was not, um, if it was not a situation that occurred because of like a, a violent. Ah, you're frozen. Sorry about that. We'll go to Barb Biddle. You'll need to unmute Barb and then we'll come back to Dr. Bavers. Barb, you are there. Yes. Um, a couple things. Uh, one is I'm a nurse by background and started um, part of my early experience in when I moved to Des Moines at Planned Parenthood. And that was pre-Roe. And um, I'm when you're talking about youth, about the youngest experience I had was an 11-year-old who was uh, severely mentally retarded, whose mother brought her in um, to the doctor. And then she ended up at Planned Parenthood talking to our medical people there that um, she was pregnant and mother didn't know that. She just thought she was kind of pudgy, but found out she was pregnant. And the the problem was it was incest. And one of the things that we don't talk about, I've not, I don't hear very often come up is uh, incestual relationships that happen and pregnancy does occur. And so um, it is out there. The next thing I would say is um, as a nurse, um, doctors have the final decision and they are on the front line dealing with the hardest parts of, of it all. And one of the things I'd like you to hear you just say out loud for this group of people here is, when do you believe the real fetal heartbeat occurs instead of this pulsing that they keep referring to from the opposition? Dr. Bravers, I think um, I, now. yes, go ahead. Okay, good. I hope I'm back. Um, I, I don't recall where I was at with the last question, but what I'll say about, you know, the real fetal heartbeat is that um, embryologic development is something that occurs um, over those nine months. Those nine months are very important. You start with one cell from mom and one cell from dad, and you end up with a, an organism that is complex and and you can't, I don't think, look at one point in time where that organism, you know, becomes um, more or less kind of important than than during the, those nine months. Of course, I think that you can make an argument that you know that age of viability, where that heart could beat on its own outside of mother and sustain itself. Sure, that's an important moment. Um, personally, for my patients, that's an important moment, right? Because if they have a complicated pregnancy and they're taking it day by day, trying to get the pregnancy far enough along to survive, that's very important. Is that important for Governor Reynolds? No, it's not. You know, the, when the heart starts beating enough to sustain, you know, life for, you know, a fetus outside of the mother, Sure, that would be a time when I would say, you know, maybe the fetal heartbeat becomes more pertinent, but I still don't think that it should matter to anyone except for my patients when it comes to making decisions about the future of their pregnancy. 
Dr. Bavers and Dr. Turner, I'm going to ask you both this question. I don't suppose you went into medical school to be political. When did you when did you decide that you were going to get involved in this domain? Well, you know, I was a medical student at the University of Iowa um, back in 2018 when this when the fetal heartbeat bill was passed the kind of the first time. I had already decided at that point in time to pursue a career in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, I absolutely love obstetrics and gynecology. I loved taking care of those mamas. I, um, I loved my long, long, long days on labor and delivery. Um, I myself was about eight months pregnant when one night my husband picked me up from a shift um, and, and it was just after midnight when he picked me up. And I'd been there since about 5.30 that morning. Um, and again, I'm eight months pregnant. And I, he said, how was your day? I was like, oh, it was really good. But there was a patient of mine that was getting really close to delivery, but they told me I had to come home. And I just, I really hope she does okay. And he was like, you're crazy, but this is the career for you, you know, because I loved it. Um, but then seeing what happened in 2018 and seeing what happened in the years since then, it has really shown me that kind of like Dr. Turner said earlier, sometimes our patients, they have too much going on and, and they are relying on us as their doctors and they're relying on the people that are elected to protect their rights and protect their ability to access safe healthcare. Um, and so it became very important to me to speak up about what we see in medicine and what we see taking care of our patients. Um, in order to protect this very special relationship that we have with patients to help them access the care that they need and help to provide them with standard of care um, and, and help in those situations to make a really big difference, you know, for their lives and for the lives of their, their desired babies um, or to help them accomplish the other things that they need to accomplish in their life if it doesn't involve pregnancy. Dr. Turner, how about you? When did, when did you get politicized? Um, not until well into my career. So I, when I was in residency, I always, I've told the story where, uh, we had a woman who was very sick, very infected. Um, she, her bag of water ruptured, but she was, uh, not viable. She was like 18 weeks, um, and was literally dying. And my attending came in, swooped out, um, did her abortion and she got, better immediately. And she did great. And it was like, oh my God, how did you know how to be so quick, so fast? Like you did everything. And he was like, I took care of all the septic people, all of the septic people before Roe. This is what I did. I wow. saw this every day, every week. And that really impacted me. And I was like, gosh, we are so lucky that it is 1994, 1995, whatever year it was. Um, that we will never have to deal with this because when I went into obstetrics and gynecology, I just thought I was gonna be a doctor and do women's health. And I very similar to Dr. Bavers, like obstetrics and gynecology is in my soul. Like taking care of women is like what I do and I love it. And I get joy from it. Even with all of the headaches of the world, it still fills my cup. So I just like lived my life and I really never thought Roe would fall. It just, I never thought, 
And then around 2016, I was like, oh, things are getting a little wonky here in the United States. Um, and I just started paying more attention somewhere around 2014, 2016. Uh, then I started becoming active with American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They have a uh, legislative conference every year. So I started going to that in D.C. Um, and lobbying our all of our Congress people and senators. Um, then I became active with ACOG at the state level. Um, so the Iowa section of ACOG, and then I became legislative chairperson for American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, and that was two years ago. Um, and then that was, I became really involved in things in the state level because we didn't have a lobbyist um, and a lot of other states had lobbyists. So I became very active in finding a lobbyist and figuring out how we we're going to make this work for our state and what we could do at the state level. Um, so, and that is actually where I met Dr. Bavers was in DC at a congressional leadership conference. Um, and then with the, uh, we knew that the Supreme court of Iowa was voting and we decided um Dr. Babers actually was the lead on this. She was like, we need to do something in our state. Um, and she called me up and said, let's start a political action committee. Uh, and I, for some reason, said, yes, let's do it. And here we are. <laughs> so what's your desired outcome from the PAC? Are you going to be recruiting candidates to run for office, supporting candidates in the primary? Um, what, what are you going to be doing with this PAC? Mary, do you want to take this one? Because you're our... <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> well, certainly, um, I'll count on both Dr. Babers and Dr. Turner to um, amend anything that I share. When they formed the organization, it's a 501c4, last summer, uh, it is formed with the goal of educating and forming the, not only the public, the rest of the medical community and the the legislative communities about their um, intended outcome of legislators who keep the government out of their exam rooms. So that means protecting patient rights and uh, uh, operating as physicians who can make the best, who can with their patients make the best healthcare uh, options available without their hands tied with certain ones that they can't discuss or they can only discuss or in the current legislation, it requires the physicians to be interrogators, to actually ask some questions if rape or incest are involved or um, there is language about that, that in effect um, asks the do doctors to become much more, uh, uh, to operate as much more in, in the role of enforcement and interrogators as um, instead of healthcare professionals. So the PAC will be endorsing candidates and uh, at this juncture, that endorsement, depending on the, the amount of money that's raised for the PAC, will include either a financial contribution to a candidate or a campaign that is supportive of reproductive freedom and uh, the liberties we prize and our rights we maintain, and uh, support in terms of promoting it to the supporters that we are currently gathering together in the, the campaign, if you will. So it's twofold. It is to support candidates at the state level, beginning uh, with the primary and then the general, 
who are uh, in favor of and will support reproductive freedom and choice. And then also the financial support would be augmented, enhanced by our public support. Would, and that would mean we would use the media, social media, and make the support known to others. So educate, inform, and then actually support candidates who will um, enact legislation that uh, furthers the goals. So in terms of education, both of you doctors are, do a really compelling job of communicating what the what the reality of this issue is for people. Are you open to doing uh, events, going around the state, doing more Zoom calls? If people on this call wanted to invite you to meet with their local chapter of whatever, would, would you either do this yourselves or invite somebody else to appear? Yes, we are both, you know, available to whether it be appear on a Zoom meeting or if you have a group that is gathering, we will make every effort to be there. Um, you know, I like to say that part of what we do, of course, is we're taking care of women and we're trying to um, change the way that reproductive freedom is valued here in Iowa. But the other thing that we do is we're just talking to everyone we can about this issue. Um, and so if it helps you to have us come and talk and start that conversation with your own networks or in your own groups, please um, invite us and we will kind of do that hard first step of opening up the conversation and hopefully, you know, changing some hearts and minds by um, having these conversations will will start to change Iowa. Dr. Turner, um, what about you? Yeah, so uh, both myself and Dr. Bavers have um, been very busy in the last year. So we've been at, you know, we went to the Polk County Steak Fry. Um, I, we've met with Polk County Democrats, Dallas County Democrats. I'm going to be speaking with um, Southeast Dallas County Democrats. Um, I'm speaking at like an electrical union women's conference, um, progress, Iowa. Um, we just, I spoke at the, uh, abortion access, Iowa abortion access fund gala. Um, I spoke at the Liberty and justice gala. Um, we're just trying to get out there because what I tell a lot of people, Dr. Bavers and I live this life. And for me to say the word abortion is like very easy because I say abortion a lot, even in my daily life, in my job. Um, so it's really hard for a lot of other people to just even start that conversation or what do they say? Or they have all these feelings and they know things are right, but they don't have the information or the words or the studies. And basically we just go there and to go to these things. I know Dr. Babers has done a ton of um, speaking engagements too um, and give people the tools that they need so that, because we know the vast majority of Iowans believe that abortion should be legal at some stages, um, but they don't know how to articulate it. And with people, when we give them the tools and the power and the information and the words, then they can go out and talk to their neighbors or their family members or other people in their community to say, well, we shouldn't actually do this. Or this is why um, I heard Dr. Turner speak. And like, there is very compelling data that says um, states with abortion restrictions have a 16 
one six, 16% increase in infant mortality. Um, that data right there is very compelling. More babies will die if we have abortion restrictions. And just in case anybody missed it, in the state of Iowa in 2022, so they just came out, the CDC, with their numbers, and nationally, infant mortality increased by 3%. But in 2022, in the state of Iowa, infant mortality increased by 30%, is the highest of any other state in the country. So we already have an infant mortality problem. We are compounding that because we have maternal healthcare deserts. We compound that with abortion restrictions. We are increasing infant mortality. We're increasing maternal mortality. So these are the kinds of things that I just like to say and get people comfortable and think about so that they can go out and use this information, these tools for themselves. Thank you so much. I, I noticed that Lee, uh, Leah Vandenbosch was on the call and I know she's involved in this organization, not, not, not your organization, but a different, yeah. different uh, solution. So Leah, where'd you go? Why don't you talk about what you're doing? Hey, thank you, Julie. Um, and thank you so much to you both for being here. I got so excited when I got the email that you were on the podcast today. Um, I do work for Iowa Abortion Access Fund, and we partnered together with Iowans for Health Liberty. Loved having Dr. Turner at our fall fundraiser. Um, and it's so critical for us right now to do exactly what you're doing with uplifting the fact that abortion is health care and should just be a full stop right there as to whether this should even be um, an issue at the Capitol. Um, we, the Access Fund, our mission is really simple. We provide funding for anyone who needs support with abortion care. Um, all of Iowa and then seven counties in Illinois is within our scope, and they can go anywhere in the country for abortion care. And I'm curious, um, question for you both um, to hear your feedback as I'm working with the Midwestern funds and clinics, we're already needing to get folks out of state because our wait times at the clinics are, you know, three to four weeks with Planned Parenthood, two to three weeks with Emma Goldman. Obviously, it's a very time sensitive issue. And um, with the six week ban, if that were to uh, be in effect here, um, what does that look like, do you think, as far as our resources in the state? Um, clearly, I, I kind of consider it, you know, like a full out ban basically at that point, because it's really difficult to even know that you're pregnant within that time frame. Um, but I believe with Planned Parenthood in Des Moines is closing at the end of this month and we'll be down to um, three Planned Parenthoods, I want to say, offering abortion services and then Emma Goldman. So we've got four clinics. If the six-week ban were to come into play, what do you think our resources will look like in Iowa? Dr. Turner, you want to ask, answer first? Or Dr. Babers? Um, Dr. Babers might know a little bit more, but I'm going to say it's not looking good what our resources are. And I know for like my patients who are very low resource, um, it is going to be very difficult. Yeah, I would echo that. I think that there is, there's absolutely nothing um, optimistic to say about this situation, which is why it's really urgent for everyone who cares about this to get as involved as, as you can. 
um, because there's, I have zero optimism about this. Unfortunately, just the state of things here in Iowa, you know, as Dr. Turner mentioned earlier, already 51st out of 51 in terms of OBGYNs in the state. Um, OBGYNs are really the only physicians that provide abortion care, are trained for that um, as per our residency training. And so you have a shortage of physicians providing any OBGYN care, and then you have a shortage of physicians providing um, abortion care here in Iowa. With a shortage of physicians providing abortion care comes an unstable um, job market for nurses, MAs, um, and sedation specialists who help at abortion clinics. And so many of the people who even you know two or three years ago in Iowa were staffing these clinics and helping to provide care, because again, nothing is in a vacuum. It's not like I can go and do this myself. Um, many of those people have moved on to other places where they can have more um, reliable and consistent work than what they could have in Iowa, again, because of the shortage of physicians, resources, um, and just general um, um, uncertainty around the future of abortion care here in Iowa. Um, right now, I think one of the main reasons that the wait times are so long is honestly because of staff shortages even more than physician shortages. Um, if we are in a situation where abortions must be performed prior to six weeks gestation, um, we are not gonna be able to help very many people because right now in Iowa, you know, there's abortion care most days out of the week. Um, I'm sure you know this, Leah, there's abortion care most days out of the week, but there, it's all over the state. Now, if you added in the six week um, limitation with all the other restrictions that are already active in Iowa, I think this is really important to say to everybody, Iowa is already a very restricted state. Iowa already has lots of restrictions around receiving abortion. Um, and so the adding in that six week ban to a 24 hour wait period, and timing of consents and the need for an ultrasound and a scarcity of providers and a scarcity of nurses and a scarcity of ultrasonographers and the travel restrictions of patients and the low resources of many of the patients who are gonna be seeking this care, um, it's catastrophic. Wow, thank you all for what you do. I would like Mary to have you wrap this up with three things people on this call can do let's take this to an action mode what we've we we're 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 fired up ready to do something what do people need to do number one join us you can do that by signing up on the website islands for health liberty there is a button there that says uh, add my name and you'll be contacted number two if you have any financial resources and want to commit those, please know that a $10 recurring fund, uh, uh, contribution or more will be very welcome as we go forward. And number three, use your voice. When you hear something that is of uh, misinformation, hopefully these doctors have given you what you need to, to let people know that there are now physicians who are in this fight for freedom and they're willing to step up and be very courageous, which this does take. 
And so know that your voice matters as much as you're uh, joining us with your name and your dollars. Uh, we care and we care about you. So please join us as we care about these physicians who want to practice medicine. Not and for like those who want to, we're going to go into break breakout rooms for about four minutes. If you want to meet other people and kind of share ideas, you two doctors have work to do, so you don't need to be a part of that. But thank you very much for what you do. Mary, thanks for suggesting we do this. I'm going to put folks in the breakout rooms and thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you, Julie. Norma, how was your group? I learned a lot about what the ACLU is doing in, in Iowa as an educational piece. They're they're nonpartisan, but they're um, very active in education around abortion uh, issues. So that was a piece of learning for me. I appreciated that. Okay, great. How are your small groups, guys? They were um, great. You had some great information on a three-year study in Colorado on free contraception. That was it's a, a helpful information. Great. Yeah. Anything you picked up and want to share with me, I'll put it in the I'll put it in the um, wrap up of the call. And by all means, I should have said this to everybody on the call, but use the podcast. 